The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Another episode of the Art of War podcast. Today I'm joined by one of my favoriteest Warhammer players, John the Boy King Lennon. John, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Always good to talk to you, Nick. It uh, feels like we haven't spoken in a day. Ironically, we're doing this from a thousand miles away, so it's kind of like a normal podcast. Yeah, it kind of is. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. So for those of you who don't know, John is actually an Art of War coach. He's quite the acclaimed Warhammer player, winning uh, multiple U.S. Opens, uh, plenty of other Super Majors, member of Team America for WTC. Did I miss anything, John, there? Uh, you know, that's most of it. Yeah, no, he's quite the accomplished Warhammer player. You can actually come learn from him on the Art of War uh, 40k.com, our website. He does coaching and is available right now for a limited time. But also, he's here to talk about his triumphant victory over all of his peers, including myself, at the Streamhouse RTT 2023 Best Event Ever. Obviously, this is the, the largest accomplishment of my life, so I'm, I'm really happy that you're acknowledging it. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, all those other things, they were just... The preamble. This is really what we're here to talk about. This is a two-part show, everybody. In part one, we're going to get to know the man, the myth, the myth, the legend, the boy king, John Lennon himself. We're going to learn his play style about the game, his history, how he's been playing it for so long, and how he's become one of the top players in the world. Ultimately, we're going to take his philosophy about the game and list build with it and go on this journey where we learn about the Chaos Knight list that he took and piloted successfully through the tournament. In part two, this is going to be for subscribers only. You can subscribe on AOW40K.com. That's where the patrons are. Not only will you get access to John Lennon's sultry tones and the, all the mysteries of the Chaos Knights, but we're going to break down the tactics, the strategies, his matchups, how he actually plays this army. And let me tell you, it's not just jamming knights up the middle of the table. There's a lot of nuance to it. So you're not going to want to miss that episode. John, are you ready? I am more than ready. I'm excited. That's wonderful. I'm excited, too. All right, let's just deep dive right in. So tell me a story. Tell me about how you got into Warhammer and how you ended up making it your job. Yeah, so um, I've been playing Warhammer for a very, very long time. Um, I actually started back in fourth edition. Um, so I've been playing for over 15 years now, which is well over half of my life. Um, I started out as a tiered player. And uh, because I was you know, a literal child at the time, I didn't exactly have a lot of funds for a lot of models or a lot of armies, which means when 4th edition switched to 5th edition and, you know, a tier list was supposed to change, mine just didn't, you know, because I owned exactly the models that I was playing with and, like, maybe a spare lifter. Um, so I just played Tyranids from uh, 4th, 5th, 6th uh, through the start of 7th as my only faction, and that really made me love that army. Um, Tyranids are still my favorite army whenever Tyranids are... Uh, one of the better armies or competitively viable, I like to play them. But um, that's just kind of how I like, you know, grew up trying to be competitive. Obviously, you know, when you're in middle school, there's different uh, stages of being successful at being competitive. But, you know, I was able to win an RTT, um, you know, before I made it to high school, which is cool. Um, and uh, yeah, from there, I just kind of uh, played in the local Florida scene. Um, I didn't really travel for events. I'd go to like one or two GTs a year, just whatever was in driving distance. And then I went to ATC uh, for a while. So ATC, which of course is, uh, you know, the original American team event, is kind of what made me passionate about competitive 40K. 
Uh, because, you know, honestly, I mainly did tournaments because it's the only way I could play three games in a day. And it's the only way I could guarantee a game because, you know, I was a high schooler without a car. So it's just have my parents drop me off on RTT on a Saturday, have them pick me up Saturday night. So that was the most efficient way to get games. I really loved being competitive because of Team 40K. And that has really kind of driven how I've approached the game um, and how I've gotten better because I've always tried to get better with other people. I've never just tried to lock myself in a room and think so hard about 40K that, you know, my brain grows. Um, so, you know, as far as, I guess, like my competitive career goes, um, you know, being a member of that team kind of led me uh, and, and uh, at ETC kind of led me to Team Brohammer, where I was one of the founding members. I ended up becoming the captain and uh, ended up taking us uh, to the, uh, what, a number two spot, an undefeated number two in a tournament where I actually tied Nick's team at uh, ATC, which again is kind of like my, like my favorite longest running competitive event that, I, that I've gone to. And uh, that kind of led me to meet Nick. That led me to get a best teams in the ITC slot with Team Brohammer. And uh, that led me to the Art of War because uh, Nick hit me with an offer I couldn't refuse, which was to stop working in an office and play more 40K. Gets him every time. Yeah, I really couldn't say no. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, John, it's awesome. And then, you know, I've known bits and pieces to that whole story, but I don't think I've ever heard it from point A to point B like that. Um, how did you actually find Warhammer as like a, how old were you, 10 years old? Um, I was aware of Warhammer when I was like 10 or 11. Um, so I, I found it through the Lord of the Rings game, which uh, I hear is a common thing. So I uh, honestly, I found it because I bought like a Lord of the Rings video game and there's like a little like pamphlet in the back that had like an ad for the Games Workshop Lord of the Rings minis. And, you know, I was just like bored. So I just like looked at it on the, on the line and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then a friend of mine in, again, this point, like fifth grade also like liked it and like i like bought like a box of orcs he bought a box of like you know uh the the good guys in order things like the writers of rohan and that's kind of how i became aware of games workshop but like i went into a game store and that's how i saw that no one was playing the lord of the rings game which made me very sad but people were playing other games and that's kind of how i got into 40k and the idea of it so i got a tyranid codex and uh and a box of gods my 12th birthday because um you know, for, for then 12-year-old John, that was just the next step up from Legos. It's like Legos you could paint and play games with. And then that just grew into a lifelong obsession. I feel like with the Lord of the Rings being your gateway to Warhammer and me having to write Lord of the Rings essays for you, there's like some twist of fate irony going on here. And I'm just not for it. Oh, it's it's full circle, Nick. It's full circle. It's why I don't Lord of the Rings so much. It's I mean, and you should too. Without Lord of the Rings, you wouldn't have such a wonderful employee. So anyways... Moving on from that, you said you always like to you go to RTTs and stuff because it was a way to guarantee three games for you. Um, you know, just being able to play Warhammer for sure, especially because you were a kid. So, and that's honestly, I, I liked it for the same reasons. But here you are now as an adult, super competitive with the game, you know, one of the top players in the world. How did you go from just playing casually, trying to go to RTTs to get games of Warhammer in to like destroying people? Um, so I've always liked being competitive. I've always been a competitive person. Um, you know, I used to go to like chess tournaments when I was like nine and 10, um, before I, you know, graduated to Warhammer. So I I've always been competitive. I always like liked to push myself and like to get better at something. Uh, anytime, anything worth doing is worth doing right. It's kind of something I, I think. So it for me, it was just kind of like having the ability to 
like having an environment to get better. So, you know, finding other people who did well at RTTs, you know, I, um, I usually like at local RTTs, I'd usually go like two and one or three, you know, or something along those lines. Um, like I'd usually go positive and, uh, for a while it was just that. And then I'd go to like a, the local GT every year and I'd go like four and one and, you know, I'd never win them, but I would always be positive. And I just kind of sat in that holding pattern for, for like five years. I was just like, yep, go to RTTs, go either two and one or three and oh, go to a local GT, win four games. Doesn't matter if it's five rounds or six rounds. I'd go to a GT, I'd win four games, never less, never more. Um, I seriously, I, I think I went like four and one or four and two at every GT I went to for four years. Like, I don't think I ever went three and two. Don't think I ever went five and all. just right in the middle. Very consistent. I was very consistent. And what kind of got me better and got me over the hump, so to speak, because that's about where I was for fifth, sixth and most of seventh edition. Um, and what kind of got me over like over the hump, I guess, was it wasn't just like army chasing because I still really liked playing Tyranids. It was just finding other players who were of that same caliber or better than me. And find, finding someone better than me and playing them is really how I get better. Uh, so that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're the smartest person in the room, go find a different room is the saying. How do you just go find people who are better than you, especially as you climb that ladder of skill? You know, the pool of people who are greater in skill than you diminishes and it's harder and harder to find them, especially if you're limited. Yeah. So it, honestly, for me, it was just about kind of where I was in my life. And by the time 8th edition was rolling around, I was, you know, I had a driver's license. I had a job. I was not in high school anymore. Because uh, it's very hard to uh, take Friday off work if you don't have a job and are in high school. And I don't think I could ever convince my parents to let me uh, fly to a super major and skip school on Friday. So for me, it was more just about being in that kind of that ability to go. So traveling was really what did it because uh, ATC was the only event that I left Florida for is the only event that I would like get a hotel for. Other than that, it's like, well, if a GT is close enough to drive, I'll go to that. If it's not, I won't. And so for me, it was just about traveling, going to events, meeting more people. Um, actually, Charity Hammer was really one of the things that I credit as one of my like get to the next level because it, it, it kind of started when I started going to more events and started traveling a little bit more, like driving to events in like Georgia or Alabama or, you know, places near Florida. Um, I wasn't really flying for him yet, but, you know, places near Florida. Um, that was kind of how I started getting better at the game and got to the point where I could win like a like local GTs. Um, and that, that, that came in about eighth edition. It actually came after an ATC where I had my worst tournament performance ever. And it was on a very good team. So our team placed well, but I didn't do very well. That first ATC of the eighth edition, remember the index hammer? Oh, yeah. Birds in the brims. Yeah, I, I played like. It was during that week where pure strange genes throws were 10 points for no reason. So I played 100 of them, and then I faced like 28 Storm Ravens across six games. And you can probably guess how my win-loss record looked. It's one of those team events to take one of the teams. Yeah, like we realized like after round two that like my list wasn't good into the meta, so I just kind of kept jumping on grenades. One of those. Was, when the edition drops like that, it's, it's a bit of the Wild West. I, we're going to experience that fairly soon, I suppose. Yeah, we really might. It'll be fun. Um, I still really enjoyed the event, but that that kind of was my moment of like, all right, I need to like actually like start getting better at the game if I'm going to be traveling this much. Um, so I just like found players who are better than me. I started driving out to other cities more like just for like a day. Like I would drive from Tampa to Orlando, play two games of Warhammer against people who I thought were equal or better than me and just drive home. Like I wouldn't do that on a tournament. I'd like 
literally I'd be like, hey, on a Tuesday that I'm off work, I'd be like, hey, anyone else off work today? And I'd drive to Orlando, play a practice game against a good player, drive home, um, which took a lot of time and gas money, but I really wanted to get better. And that kind of led me to winning my first GT in uh, the first couple months of 8th edition. Yeah, it makes sense. It's basically like you're growing your social network and in, in and then leveraging it for 40K skill. You're going to tournaments, meeting 40K players. Um, this is really the community that we always talk about. Like, It's a small game like in terms of number of people who go to the events and stuff. So you get to see the same faces over and over. You be, over the course of like three RTTs, you'll have a friend group of people who go to the tournaments. And from there, you can expand and meet more people. And uh, definitely, like you said, like start arranging games on the side with them and uh, find the ones who have the same goals as you. If you want to get better, find people who want to get better. Blake over there is a great example on the Art of War Unbroken show. He's trying to get really great at painting, so he's trying to network with the painters and really get good at that aspect. Yeah, and I think that networking spot really took off for me in 8th edition. Um, that's definitely like kind of when I made my first jump. And that's the first year I went to LVO. And at LVO, I get to, you know, play six people I've never played before. I get to meet a bunch more people. I get to meet people who I've, you know, spoken to online or, you know, like friends of friends, teammates, make new friends, etc. Um, I think that was actually the, the LVO that you won. And um, the so, ancient times, John. <laughs> ancient times. <laughs> And that's kind of really where I started to like network and meet people. And that's where I, I got hooked on it. So I was like, oh, man, this is so much fun. You know, like I need to keep doing this. And that's kind of when I started. So I've I've been to every LVO since. Um, and I think like, you know, the next kind of big jump point for me because again, is all about the networking was Charity Hammer, where uh, which was I can think the, the first time that I got to play you. And that was where I was like, all right, I need to find someone better than me. And I went to Charity Hammer and Nick. Uh, you know, knocked my head around three times. Um, and that helped me level up. Well, that's awesome. I'm very glad to be part of that story. So let's transition the topic just a little bit, moving from you as a player to how you actually play Warhammer. Because one of the things you, you talked about in this story arc of yours is how you found people better than you and you leveled up. And so many players struggle with that. And you even did yourself where you were at four and two forever. And then event now you're going six and oh, seven, oh, eight and oh, and just crushing it. So each one of those wins gets harder and harder to come by going from four and oh as a player to five and oh to six and oh, um, especially as the competition level rises. So how do you break those artificial mental ceilings that you can place on yourself and really leverage your ability to get practice games to help you get better? It's a really it's a really fine balance because Part of it is having confidence in yourself and part of it is admitting that you're not as good as you think you are. Because a lot of times when I would lose, I'd be like, oh, well, I lost because I'm playing Tyranids and they're not very good right now. You know, this was definitely a problem in 5th edition when like Space Wolves and Dark Elder were everywhere. And they just like, you know, they just beat Tyranids, it felt like. Um, and then so it's part of it is like, OK, let's look at what actually went wrong in the game. How do I learn from this? How would I win this game if I did it again? It's not just, you know, it's, it really is never, oh, I lost because of a dice roll. It's, I was in a position to lose where I needed a dice roll to happen because of a mistake I made two turns earlier. Or it's, I didn't practice enough with this list and I didn't understand a matchup and then going into it, I made some mistakes differently. Or I didn't practice this list and the list wasn't as good as it could have been. Maybe I can fix the list and come back and, and learn from it. Um, so a lot of it was, you know, you're losing because of you, not because of factors you can't control because yes 
if I roll a hundred ones and I re-roll them into a hundred ones, yeah, I probably am going to lose. But that's not real. You know, that, that doesn't actually ever happen. Um, so it's, it's basically never, I lost because of the dice. It's always, let me look back. And sometimes it's asking, it's playing a person better than me, losing and then talking to them. was a lot of it, honestly. Where, yeah. you know, like, if, like, again, at that charity hammer, I talked to Nick a lot because uh, I, I think we played three distinct games and I think all three of them were very close, but uh, I did not win any of them. And, you know, we had a whole weekend because Charity Hammer is a wonderful event where I got to, you know, you know, have Nick's here for a while. I got to, to bug you about a lot of things. I got to ask you a lot of questions. You still do. <laughs> still do. I still do. <laughs> uh, and so, like, kind of how I resolved to get better was accept that if I'm losing, if I lose a game, it's because of me. And it could just be that someone is better than me, but that means I could have been better. And so it, it was kind of having that confidence of I'm capable of being better, but also that, you know, be honest with yourself. Like, no, you didn't play a perfect game and roll bad. You made mistakes. And try to, you know, be very critical with myself about how I could have been better and then talk to other people. You know, that's honestly the best part about playing someone better than you is having a conversation afterwards and kind of talking about the little things that could have changed the game. Yeah, I definitely agree. And ultimately, it goes to what one of our mantras is, is our war is don't blame the dice. And that's pretty much what you're saying. Like the example you gave is, yeah, if you rolled a two up on the one turn, you rolled a one, it sucks. But you could have moved somewhere better two turns earlier and not even have to have that happen. So ultimately, finding those moments is the challenging part because you know it's something you did. Once you accept that fact, it's just about finding it. And the way you do that is, I love that answer, just talk to your opponent at the guy who beat you. And it, so many times, like in my experience where I've played events, um, and I'll have a round three, round four opponent, and it'll be like, we'll play a nice game of Warhammer, I've got the win. Then they're like, okay, where, what could I have done differently? Where did I go wrong? And it's very interesting, because I'll try to give them a very thoughtful answer, because I really want to help people get better. And I'll pinpoint like the mistakes I thought they made and like how I capitalized on them, and then maybe what they could have done differently to create a different game state. And it's almost like a light bulb I've seen go off in people's brains because they, they're viewing it from the perspective of like, I don't even know what I could have done better. And you can tell them, like, this is what you could have done better. This is how I beat you. This is what I was looking for. And that is like anytime someone better than you really gets you to it. So that having, being able to be open to having that conversation is a huge part of getting better. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And I've, I've definitely been in that spot where I've lost a game and I've gone home and been like, oh, if I hadn't rolled a one, I would have won the tournament. And that's, you know, that's a fun story to tell over dinner. But my, my philosophy, and I know Nick uh, gets to hear my dice stories all the time, because I still complain about dice. I'm human. Uh, my philosophy is that dice matter for 24 hours. And after that, you have to look at the game. Because, you know, the social part of the game is very important. And honestly, like the, the swapping stories about games after dinner, you know, at a GT, like is like a real part of the social game to me. So, you know, like at a, at a, at an event, you know, if I lose round three, I'll, I'll be out to dinner with some friends. I'll be like, oh, and then his, you know, his Dire Avengers rolled seven sixes on ten dice, and then I lost. I was like, oh, it was horrible. And, like, we'll talk about that. But then, like, a day later, I have to be like, all right, why did I lose? It wasn't because the Dire Avengers rolled sixes. Why were the Dire Avengers shooting me? Why were they alive? Why did I let him shoot my Warlord with Dire Avengers? Things like that. That's why I lost, not because he happened to roll a couple of extra sixes. Right, because you're ultimately you're trying to not have the randomness be the factor that decides your game and you want to have more control over your own fate. Exactly, exactly. And uh, 
And so, you know, as I've gotten more experience, as I've played more, I've, you know, I get better and better at mitigating that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All stuff we're talking about in the war room. Let's talk about how you list build and your philosophy of the game. Because up until very recently, as you said, you've been Tyranids forever, Tyranids 5 ever. And you actually played the 2022 season pretty much exclusively with Tyranids. But I've watched you dabble into all kinds of space marines, into chaos nights that you took to the stream house RTT. And through nature of being a professional at this now, you've got to play a bunch of different armies um, for your job. So how do you approach 40k kind of philosophically? Yeah, so my philosophical approach to 40k is that I really value armies that are consistent or reliable. Um, I never, like if I had the chance between three shots that hit on a five up and one shot that hits on a two up rerollable, I'll take the two up rerollable one shot every time over three shots that hit on fives and be like, Hey, maybe I get one hit on average. Maybe I get zero hits. Maybe I get two or three hits. I'll take one shot hits on two rerollable as in, I just want to know that I'm getting my one hit. Um, so I really like, and that, that kind of drives the armies that I like to play. So I really like Tyranids. Um, not only because I just love the models and the lore and everything about Tyranids, um, I like that they're a really good control army usually. And then I feel like Imperium armies tend to be a little more math and consistent than Chaos and like Orcs or, you know, armies like that that I, I think tend to be a little bit more chaotic or unpredictable or random. You know, armies that kind of like just get into scrum and like just kind of see what happens. Like you're not trying to build your whole army around like this psychic power goes off. Yeah, now I've, you know, Tyranids have a little bit of that problem, so I usually just try to make it pass as often as possible and work from there. But yeah, I usually like armies that are consistent. Um, and I found that my, my gameplay-wise, I really like armies that have the opportunity to start conservative and can then explode out at a certain point at a time of my choosing. And so I found that armies that can afford to not be aggressive on turn one, but have the ability to be aggressive later, is what I have enjoyed the most. So an army like Tyranids, where I can kind of park for two turns and then turn three, go as fast as I want and, and do things. An army like, you know, Sisters or Harlequins, I, I don't like admitting it, but uh, Harlequins do fit my play style very well, even though I, I don't consider myself an elf player. I've had a lot of success with when I've played those armies because they can afford to take a turn or two to power up, score their secondaries, threaten, and then commit when they need to. Those are the armies that I've traditionally found myself having the most success with. I don't like armies that alpha strike on turn one. Um, so even when I play an army like Imperial Guard, I actually usually don't bring out Kasserkin early, or I usually just will, will like get in line of sight early. I usually just kind of pick around the edges, fire indirect, lock and load the Kasserkin, and just build up CP and wait. That's how I've really enjoyed playing the game, is I like taking a couple of turns to set up the perfect scenario, and then tell my opponent, like, aha, now you have to come out, otherwise you'll lose on points. And then once they come out and, like, surprise, the flyer moves 25 inches and eats you. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So it's like a, almost like a controlled aggression where you're just laying a trap and then you pounce when the time is right for it. Yeah, and I, I have to play multiple play styles, as you know, as part of the job. But that's kind of the one that I prefer. That's the one that I think I have the most success with. And that's usually what I try to build for whenever I'm, like, starting from scratch, picking an army for a tournament. I like those kinds of arms the most. So there's so many different ways to approach 40k, and usually we boil it down to like a very simplistic aggro and control, like aggressive and defensive. And this is kind of takes elements of both and blends them together. How do you go about creating an army like that, especially with all the different factions to draw upon? Like, what do you look for? What I look for the most 
is ability to control the scoreboard or ability to force action out of the opponent. Um, that's what I love, because what I love doing is taking a turn or two to set up a defensive position and then telling my opponent, well, if you don't come to me, you're going to lose. So there's a couple different ways to do that. Um, one of the best ways is to apply scoreboard pressure. This was how I approached Sisters of Battle when I had a really good run with them after that codex came out, kind of during that Drukhari and Admech uh, winter, uh, was that I, I built a list that had a very, very strong passive secondaries, could play primary very well, and I could just set up a situation where I'd be like, yeah, I'm getting like 95 points if you don't come over here. And all right, I'm going to send out a, a missile once or twice and think your primary. Now you're capped at a 92. I'm going to get a 95. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Know, people step into melt and repent range. That's what they're going to do. Um, that's a super strong way to approach ninth edition for sure. Yeah. So in ninth edition, that's a very good way to do it. Um, is just uh, find a good scoreboard list. Um, other ways that I do it, honestly, I uh, have always had a soft spot for indirect fire. Um, between Hive Guard and Imperial Guard, uh, if I can find a good indirect pressure piece to do a little bit of damage while making my opponent come out. Um, I don't have a lot of armies that happen to have Fire and Fade mechanics, but if I had those, I would use them. Um, even though I complain about them when people use them against me, especially now. Endlessly. Endlessly yeah. complain. But would, if I had them, would I use them? 100% yes. Um, that's the kind of stuff I like to do. Uh, so like Overrun, you know, for Turing, it's like a kind of indirect. Um, where it's like, oops, the tyrant goes out, kills something, comes back. That, I love getting to do a little bit of damage, taking nothing back. Because the game starts out as 2,000 versus 2,000. I would love it if turn one, no one does anything. And then turn two, I kill something, come back. All right, now it's 2,000 versus 1,900. Okay, I kill something, come back. 2,000 versus 1,800. Kill something, come back. 2,000 versus 1,700. When is my opponent going to make the push, right? You know, if they keep sitting there, I just chip them to death and I win on the scoreboard. And if they push towards me, then I'm ready. That's how I love to play. So this does lead me to think that the natural counter to your build style would be someone who does not try to get you into a control mirror match, but someone who just puts the foot on the gas pedal and slams you as hard as you could. And I'm thinking a little anecdotally, and please correct me if I'm wrong here. Looking back on your record through ninth, you have very few losses, but one of the common losses I see you having is like orcs aggro goth pressure is that do you think uh, just a foil to your play style or is it something more like list specific there it, it absolutely is and it's painfully so and it's it's not even it's that play style is the one that i struggle with the most and it's the one that i therefore try to get as much practice into as possible because i know that that is a good natural counter to me um yeah at lvo my loss was to orcs um and and it didn't help that my opponent was one a great player two had a ton of practice into my list um, whereas I did not have practice into his. Um, but I've even like uh, my loss at, the, at uh, the Dallas Open was to a Thousand Suns player who played the game much more aggressively than I expected. I like control games and I'm not I'm not bad in a scrum and when it comes down to it. But definitely that play style is the one that I struggle with the most. And that's why I've been I've been trying to adjust my list recently to be able to answer that. Um, as I'm sure you noticed, uh, Nick, right after LVO had a little bit of a phase where every army that I was playing had just insane amounts of damage and shooting if I needed it. Yeah, all of a sudden you were a gunline player. It, it yeah. happened. <laughs> it's because of I, I did the same self-analysis where I was like, all right, I keep losing to this play style. <clears throat> and then sure enough, at the Cherokee Open, I had an orc player to play on the line on Death and Zeal and sprint straight at me. And uh, I just kind of rubbed my hands together and I said, never again. And uh, I got away <laughs> in that game because I, 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 was, I was not in the mood to lose that way for a fourth time in like three months. And then ironically, 
that same tournament, you ended up playing against Deathwing Terminator spam, which is like the, the polar opposite. I'm just going to stand here and be tough at you for five turns. And you mm-hmm. know, 40K is like that. You, know, you solve one problem, another one appears. There, there is no perfect list, no matter how, uh, no matter how you try. So how did you arrive to Chaos Knights for the Streamhouse RTT? Like when we think about control armies, knights do not pop into anybody's mind as a control army. Like that. Yeah, so um, I one I, I I really like knights. Um, and when Chaos Knights came out as I, I hate to say it, but a real faction in Ninth Edition when they had like multiple models for the first time, it was like yeah, Chaos Knights have had rules before, but they literally had one kit, so I didn't really take them seriously if I'm being honest. So when Chaos Knights actually got multiple models, they were really cool. You know, we need a Chaos Knight player in the house. I I jumped on the army because I thought the the aesthetic of it was awesome, and because I don't own any Chaos armies. And even though I don't usually like the playstyle that Chaos Armies bring, I do, I did want to own at least one Chaos Army. So I, I jumped on Chaos Knights because I also love big stompy robots. Um, I, I, I often joke that I have two armies that I like, which is fast, janky combat and big stompy walker. Because I seriously like everything I play is one of those two archetypes. Because, you know, back when I was playing Space Marines, it was either like fast white scars or six dreadnoughts. Custodies, six dreadnoughts. Knights, Chaos Knights. Um, and then everything else is a fast combat army. Um, so I, I arrived on Chaos Knights because I felt like they were, they're, they're an army that I really like, that I really enjoy playing, that I feel is criminally undervalued because I think that Chaos Knights have a very common problem with how they're played, which is that people see Chaos Knights and assume that they're a Chaos Army. And I treat Chaos Knights like they're an Imperium Army, and I don't try to play them like they're Chaos um so i they have chaos in the name you're just doing it wrong john they you know am i am i I doing it wrong so what does that even mean because like imperial armies and chaos armies don't have special rules inherently that say imperial armies stay back and chaos armies run forward like what do you mean that you don't play the chaos army like a chaos army well you know i kind of how i mentioned earlier a lot of imperium armies have this like more math efficient style a more you know control play style with guns Whereas Chaos Armies are kind of stereotyped as like weird magic stuff and oops, I hope I pass warp time. And oh yeah, I have, you know, 29 attacks per possessed model with exploding fours into Imperium. Like I'll kill everything I touch, but I don't have a bolt pistol. Um, so I play Imperial, I play Chaos Knights with the same play style that I would play Sisters of Battle or, um, or, a, con- or a control space marine list. Or like a foot custodies list, like that's how I play them. I don't play them aggressively. So um, you can see if you want to watch any of those games from the Streamhouse RTT. Um, uh, all four of my games happen to be on stream, so you can go back and watch them on our website. But I play Chaos Knights very conservatively. I play them like a shooting army, and I play them like a, a board control army with like with good secondaries, because uh, I really like the Chaos Knight secondaries. And so I don't play them aggressively. I don't take any carnivores. I don't take House Corvax that can move through walls. I don't take an, an, uh, an Infernal Faction that can buff my movement to go get into combat. I play them as an Iconoclast army, and I jam every possible shooting buff that I can into the army. And then I just say, well, you know, I built as much shooting as possible, but, you know, if you want to come towards me, I, I am still knights. I do still have a bunch of combo weapons lying around. Um, so I build them to be a little bit more durable, a lot more board control. And a lot of shooting rather than going in and punching people and making that my game plan. So I'm with you in theory here, right? Like knights that I have to walk towards are much harder to kill than knights running into melt the gun and power for strange. Mm-hmm. So 
I love that idea. But usually when you play an army that tries to sit back and shoot, the challenge to it is that, unless you're playing Astromilitarum, it's not going to be great at passive scoring. You'd be active about going forward and doing stuff to achieve your points. And you actually said you like the Chaos Knight secondary. So how is it that you can force opponents to just come towards you and, and into the fray, sort of, like something like a Sisters of Battle army could? Yeah, so what I like about the Chaos Knight army isn't that it can sit back and score secondaries well for five turns. It's that the Chaos Knight secondaries can be backloaded, which is to say that um, Ruthless Tyranny, an amazing secondary, um, just to explain it real quick, you get one point if half of the objectives are in dread range, which is like a 12-inch or off every night. I get two points if half of the objectives are controlled by a Chaos Knight. I get two extra points to a total of five if every objective on the table is on dread range, aka 12 inches. So what that means is that I, since I can get up to five points a turn, I can get a 15 without scoring at turn one or two. And so my normal score line for Ruthless Tyranny is 11355, which still gets me to a 15. So it's a little bit different than my normal style because I don't score. It's not like I'm sitting there scoring three points a turn saying, unless you come break the cycle, it, I'm going to get a 15. It's I can afford to take one or two turns off and then come out and still get my 15. So it does it a little bit differently, but it, it basically means I can be conservative and still max my scoreline, because I don't, I don't like sitting back for five turns, and that's a little boring. I like sitting back for one or two turns, getting the skirmishing aspect of the game going, and then making a move, then making a, an attack run, and winning the game off of that. So I find that Chaos Knights, they are forced to come out at a certain point, but it's an army that isn't forced to come out immediately. So I can take one or two turns and kind of call my shot on which turn is going to be the right one. It's not like, well, I have to come out this turn, otherwise I lose. It's, all right, sometime in the next three turns I'm going to come out, so I'm going to just jockey a little bit with board position and make my call on when the best time to come out is. Love it. We're actually going to unpack exactly what secondaries you take, have less plays, and all its matchups in part two, which again is for subscribers on AOW40K.com. But John, just to let us know what exactly it is we're talking about, what is the Chaos Knight army that you ended up taking to the Streamhouse RTT? Absolutely. So I ran a House Herb Trex uh, Arxelum detachment. Uh, I had one Desecrator. He's uh, the big boy with guns. I gave him um, Dark Master and uh, the Veil. So that he had a four pin will against shooting, you can't reroll against him. He's really good at dread checks because of War of Terror. Then I just took ten war dogs. Um, nine of them were House Herpetrax, which is the household that lets you get extra wounds to start. And all nine of them had the indirect missile because I like having indirect and just a little bit of shooting pressure while I'm playing conservative. It's not much, but it's enough to kill the crude hound unit here, or you know, a couple harlequins there, a couple demonets there, etc. Um, and all of them, so uh, it's three brigands and six stalkers. So the six stalkers are all a gun and a and a combo weapon. The brigands are all double gun. And so between the stalkers and the brigands, I have six chain cannons and six uh, uh, thermal spears, or demon breath spears as they're called in Chaos Knights. So it's just a good mix of Melta and Weight of Fire. And then I had one uh, executioner, which is the spiky Helverin, with um, a relic to ignore all hit and ballistic skill modders, and then a dreadblade trait, who because he's in an auxiliary that lets him be plus one to hit against vehicles. So he hits vehicles on twos regardless of any modifiers or forests or ballistic skill things or anything. He just hits vehicles on twos and he ignores cover. Uh, so it ended up being a fairly shooty list, which still had plenty of counterpunch because, you know, the, the Desecrator and Six Stalkers are all very good in combat with uh, Iconoclast buffs. 
but a lot of shooting and a lot of rerolls. Because um, when I when the army kind of balls up, all of those armagers are rerolling ones to hit and a wound, thanks to the desecrator and a relic I have. So it ends up being a very good shooting army, much better than Chaos Knights normally are. Awesome. I'm super excited to unpack exactly how it all works in part two. One question before we move on, though. Did you t- pick Chaos Knight specifically because of your path and the nature of the Streamhouse RTT? For those following, this is basically an eight-person tournament where we drafted factions. So we kind of knew there was no Astro Militarium in the field going into it when we were picking factions here. A hundred percent, yes. I definitely I think that Chaos Knights are a good army. Uh, I think that they are much better than people think. But I'll freely acknowledge Chaos Knights are not an S-tier army. They're not a perfect army, and they do have some matchups that are very challenging to overcome. I had to play some of those, but I frankly looked at the field because we, we had to pick our factions without knowing what other people did. But I looked at the field and took some guesses as to what people would be taking, and I thought that Chaos Knights could actually line up well into the field that I expected to face. And I thought this was a really fun time to kind of throw a wrench in things by taking a, a different army. Because I, I think most of the, the tournament expected me to play Imperial Guard. And, uh, and if I was the Guard player, that means no one else had Imperial Guard. So if I wasn't the Guard player, that means there wasn't a Guard player. And that definitely helped my decision to play Chaos Knights, because I figured if I could avoid Astro Militarum, I actually had a pretty good chance with the army. And, um, and I also just think that it's a really fun army that I don't get to play enough. And I really wanted an opportunity to just kind of play it for four games in, or for as many games as possible in a weekend as I could. Nice. And you took down like Fusion Pistol, Harlequins, Tau, which are what you know, one would assume is a really tough matchup for you. So definitely proved that you still got it going on with these Chaos Knights here, despite the field. And uh, obviously, these are some of the best players in the world, too. So let's not knock that either. All right, everybody. Mm-hmm. In, in part two, we are going to go over the tactics, the strategies, the hows, how he deploys, how he plays his knights passively, what that even looks like, what secondaries he takes, how he scores it all up, and just more of this goodness. Please come join us on AOW40K.com. If you don't, and this is the end of our time together, that is A-OK. We will be back next week with another guest. Thanks so much for watching, everybody. We'll catch you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.